Thanks for listening to the Grace First podcast. If you want to know more about us, head on over to gracefirst.church. Or if you're in the Wichita area, come visit us Sundays at 1015. Passage today is Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. So if you have your Bibles, you might turn to that passage, Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. One of the great joys that I have in life is being able to talk about Jesus and to discuss theology with people, especially those who have been misinformed about the character and nature of our God. I love to see the light go on in people's lives whenever the truth of Jesus impacts them in a way that they've begun to understand who he truly is and he speaks to their heart. Now for me, I can probably, I enjoy talking about the Dallas Cowboys or the Kansas Jayhawks or fishing or shooting or even playing golf. But for me to get really excited and to really have joy, I really want to talk about Jesus. It is a blessing to be able to share this passage with you today because of the two very profound characteristics that I see in this text. One of them is explicit in the text and the other is implicit throughout the text. So let me read this text for us. Mark chapter eight, starting with verse one. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus calls his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people, for they have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground, and when he had given thanks, he had taken the seven loaves and he given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them and also told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. Let me pray for us. Father, we just thank you for your word and its tremendous power to impact our lives. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would allow me to step out of the way and that you would speak through your word today. Thank you for this passage Thank you for its impact and its meaning. And I pray, Lord, that you'll bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen. The last Sunday, Pastor Tim stood up and prefaced his sermon by saying, we at Grace First do expository preaching. I kind of chuckled to myself and said, well, that's only going to last one week because that's not really what I'm going to do today. Because you see, what I had prepared is what I probably would like to call a springboard sermon. A 
take the text and find a couple things in here that I think are really powerful and then launch off of the springboard into talking about them instead of trying to go through an exposition of the text. So as we've gone through the book of Mark, Pastor Jake uh, preached several weeks ago about the feeding of the 5,000. And he put the map up on the overhead and did a great job of explaining where the, this miracle could have taken place. And then went on and, and preached about the feeding of the 5,000. Did a great job. Thank you, Pastor Jake. Pastor Tim has done a great job of preaching throughout the book of Mark. And I especially appreciated a couple of weeks ago whenever he was able to interject textual criticism as part of the sermon. I thought that was great. I love great teaching. Thank you, Pastor Tim. As you look at these passages as we're going through Mark, one of the things that has jumped out to me going through this book again is the fact that the area where Jesus ministered is a relatively small area. Whenever you see the towns of Bethsaida and Capernaum and Magdala and Nazareth, they're only about 40 miles apart. And then whenever you consider that Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, is only about 60 miles from Jerusalem, you begin to understand that his entire earthly ministry took place basically in about a 100-mile range. And so to give you a perspective, that's about like from here to Salina. That's not a very large area. And then growing up, I used to hear all the stories about the Sea of Galilee, and I thought, must be a great sea. Well, the Sea of Galilee is only about eight miles wide at its widest point and about 13 miles long. And Jesus and his disciples went back and forth across that lake numerous times. The significance of that lake to me, though, is the fact that it acts as a border between three separate regions. On the west is Galilee. On the southeast is the Decapolis region, or the Ten Cities region, and up to the northeast, there are a lot of different names for the area. It goes anywhere from the Syrophoenician area to Golanitis, or there's a lot of different names for it. But the sea kind of was a border area. So, back to the text here. The character and nature of our God is beyond comprehension. Thank you, Daniel and the worship team for that worship this morning. Um, I was getting really emotional and thought, boy, I'm gonna have trouble coming up here talking. <laughs> that, that, was, that was special, thank you. I think you could study the character and nature of God for the rest of your life and you'd probably only scratch the surface of who he truly is. One of my favorite images that I like to use to portray the character and nature of God is a diamond. If you look at a diamond, you can hold the diamond and you can turn it and you can see that it has many different facets. And you have to put it under a microscope to get the in intricacy, yeah, that word, the intricate nature of that diamond. You can't really see the diamond all at once because there's just too much to the diamond. 
Well, the character and nature of God is much, much greater than the facets on a diamond. But just like with a diamond, our eyes usually get drawn to one facet and we focus on that one facet. And I think we tend to do the same thing with God. We might focus on his love while at the, other, at the same time missing the facet of his justice. Or we might focus on his mercy and miss his demands for faithfulness and obedience. Our God is truly incomparable. All the words that we have and every explanation that we can come up with will always fall terribly short of who he truly is. I'm reminded of that passage in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 55, where God is speaking to Isaiah and he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. Our God is totally other than us and he is beyond comprehension and he is very hard for us to explain. But the problem is not with God, the problem is with us and our finite minds trying to comprehend the truly incomparable. So my goal today is to bring out two facets of the character of God from this text. Now, to kind of sum up where we are in Mark, I have a point in doing this, so bear with me. Mark spends most of the first three chapters talking about healing miracles and Jesus' confrontation with the religious leaders. In chapter four, Jesus teaches by the Sea of Galilee or the lake and then calms a storm on that lake. In chapter five, there are more healing stories. And chapter six shifts from more of the healings to talking about the public displays of signs and wonders that Jesus does among the crowds. Jesus feeds the 5,000, and then later he walks on the water. Chapter 7 begins with a confrontation with the leaders again, but then moves to a couple of deliverance miracles that I wanted to focus on. The first one is in Tyre. Tyre is northwest of Galilee, about 40 miles away from Magdala. And there, Jesus casts out a demon from the daughter of a Syrophoenician woman. And he goes from there in a very big move from 40 miles northwest, goes back down to the Sea of Galilee and goes all the way down to the southeast corner of the Sea of Galilee to the region of the Decapolis. And that's where he heals the deaf and mute man. So in chapter eight in our story, Another crowd is gathered, and since he was in the region of the Decapolis to heal the deaf and mute man, we believe that this feeding of the 4,000 took place in the Decapolis area. So the Decapolis is an area of a mixed crowd. There were Jews and Gentiles there in the Decapolis. So why is that important? What difference does that make to us? Well, when Jesus fed the 5,000, as Jake said, he was up on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee, close to the area of Bethsaida. So his audience most certainly was a strongly Jewish audience. 
But now he's doing miracles down on the southeast side, down in the Decapolis or Ten Cities region, which is predominantly Gentile. So I think Mark has a purpose in linking these three stories, the healing, the casting out of the demon from the Syrophoenician woman who is a Gentile, the healing of a deaf-mute man who is a Gentile, and now feeding a crowd who is predominantly Gentile. Mark's purpose in linking these stories is to show that Jesus' ministry is expanding beyond the Jews. His purpose was to reach the Jews, but the Gentiles are also paying attention and they're responding too. You see, Jesus already had a problem with the religious leaders, but advancing into Gentile territory means that he is going to attract the attention of Rome. Romans were able to dismiss any of Jesus' miracles among the Jews because they were just stories from his disciples. But now moving into a Gentile region and performing miracles there, there's no way that they can ignore the miracles any longer. And the Romans wouldn't like that because the Romans don't like competition, especially from the Jews. Now, in the text, the thing that I wanted to focus on is the text says that Jesus had compassion on the crowd. Now, if you read through the Gospels, over and over again, it says that Jesus has compassion on his people. I don't think you can read the Gospels without seeing the compassionate nature of Jesus. And Jesus, the Son, just like the Father and the Holy Spirit, is full of compassion. In one of the great, great stories in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 33 and 34, Moses has been spending time with Yahweh and getting the second set of stone tablets because he broke the stone first set. So now he's getting the second set of stone tablets and he's speaking with Yahweh over this period of time. And in real bold, typical Moses fashion, he says, show me your glory. But Yahweh responds and says, no one can see my face and live, but I'll show you my goodness. Now, there's a whole lot of theological implications in that little brief little statement, but I don't have time to deal with that today, so maybe that's for another time. But then in verse 6 of chapter 34, Yahweh places Moses in the cleft of a rock and passes by and proclaims to him, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. This is a really powerful statement that gets repeated several times in the Old Testament. In fact, our reading this morning in Psalm 104 was right there in the psalm. Our God is a compassionate and gracious God. Now, I just said Yahweh, Yahweh, but most of your translations probably have Lord, Lord, and the Lord is in small capitals. Well, the reason for that is in the Hebrew Bible, the Jews had this tremendously high regard for the divine name. They held it in such high esteem 
that they wouldn't even allow themselves to say it or to speak it or for that name to even be on their lips. So the translators use Lord to speak the divine name. So after Yahweh declares who he is, this is repeated over and over again in the Old Testament as a sign of worship and adoration. Even that reluctant prophet Jonah uses the same statement to complain to God that he is compassionate and gracious because he wants God to destroy the Assyrians, the Ninevites. Well, it is a fortunate thing for you and me that our God is full of compassion because without his compassion, we'd be in deep, deep trouble. It is our human nature to fail and fall short and Jesus' compassionate nature is there to forgive and to save us from our sins. In this text, in, the, in biblical Hebrew, the word that is translated compassion in our language, the Hebrew word, its root word, comes from this concept of the womb. Now, the significance of that might be lost on a lot of us men, but for women, especially mothers and babies, this has a tremendous significance and paints a very different picture. Have you ever watched a pregnant woman before? Have you ever just sit back and kind of watched what they do? They, they rub their belly. They almost obsessively hold on to their stomach. They, they cherish that part of their body that holds that baby. That paints a powerful picture of what compassion is truly like. That's what the Bible wants to communicate to you, that the compassion of our God is like the nature of a woman who caresses and cherishes and holds her baby. In our English dictionary, the definition of compassion is seen as sympathy or pity, but it also has a focus on alleviating the pain or the struggle. So when Jesus says he has compassion on this crowd, he doesn't just pity them. In his compassion, he drove to do something for them. That's what our God wants to do for you if you let him. He wants to shower his compassion on you. It is in the character and nature of the triune Godhead to show compassion for his creation. Now one quick, another quick Old Testament reference that I believe is relevant and important when talking about Jesus' compassion because not only is Jesus compassionate, but he is gentle in his compassion. Isaiah, Isaiah wrote several suffering servant of Yahweh songs in the latter part of his book in Isaiah. And in Isaiah 42, there's this little statement in the midst of one of the suffering servant songs, talking about the coming Messiah, talking about the coming Christ, that says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Now being here in Kansas, we probably don't have a lot of connection with reeds, but reeds in the Middle East 
are so fragile that if they get bumped or hit or something runs into them, it can bruise the reed. And the reed becomes so fragile at that bruise that a small gust of wind could break it over and harm it. But we probably have a little bit more reference when we talk about a smoldering wick because we all have candles and maybe you've got one of those Coleman lanterns, you know, that you fuel, that you pump up and light the little wick with a, a match. Have you ever tried to blow one out without ruining the wick? Almost impossible. But the tender, compassionate nature of Jesus is such that he can heal the reed without breaking it. And he can put out the fire on the wick without damaging it further. Jesus is full of gentle compassion for those who are broken and hurting. So in his compassion, Jesus wants to feed this crowd that's been following him for three days. But they're out in the middle of nowhere and they don't have any resources to feed the people. So how's he going to feed them? So after the story of feeding the 5,000, you would think that the disciples would say, hey, this is familiar territory, right? I'm always very tough on the disciples. They, they never seem to get it. I mean, you can read the first seven chapters of the book of Mark and realize the incredible, supernatural things that Jesus did right there in their midst. He healed diseases. He kicked out demons. He gave sight to the blind. He calmed storms. He fed 5,000 with next to nothing. And he walked on water. But to top all of that, he raised a little girl from the dead. Jesus speaks about feeding this crowd and the first question that the disciples ask is, where are we going to get enough bread? I'm like, come on, man. Don't you guys get it? Is there anything that Jesus is not capable of doing? Is there anything that's beyond Jesus? You've been with him this time. Don't you get it? Don't you understand? Of course, the answer is no, they didn't get it. But you also have to understand, it's not like these miracles were 25 or 30 years ago. They happened days or even weeks ago, and yet they still forget. The kind, tender, compassionate Jesus leads his disciples, takes care of this crowd, and includes the disciples in this miracle. Jesus takes seven loaves, give thanks, breaks them, gives them to the disciples to hand out to this crowd. They get seven small, or seven, small pieces of seven broken loaves and they feed 4,000 men and have seven baskets full left over. And Mark throws in that they have a few fish, but his focus is really on the bread because I believe that that's an allusion to Yahweh feeding the people of Israel in the desert with manna for the 40-year wandering. But I don't care how you tell it. I don't care how you see it. This story about feeding 4,000 people and having seven baskets full left over 
starting with just a few loaves and some fish is a miraculous sign. It's a miracle. There's no way that you could rationalize this away. Jesus did this miracle in the face of 4,000 men. No way it could be dismissed as just another story from the disciples. This really happened. And because there were 4,000 witnesses and they were Jew and Gentile, it made it impossible for him to hide who he was. So you'd think that someone in the crowd would get it. You'd think the disciples would understand. But no, they're still all clueless. Now I've been really hard on the disciples, but I'm also brutally aware that I am often just like them. You see, I've been hearing this story for almost 70 years. I grew up in a family that went to church every time the doors were open, and I heard these stories over and over and over again. And I wondered if at some point I didn't begin to take these stories for granted. That I wondered if I didn't quit believing that the stories were there, but I just... just the wrong moment. <laughs> right when you get ready to make a really important point. <laughs> I think the enemy is good at that. I didn't quit believing. I just think I lost the impact of these stories in my mind. I didn't respond with, respond with the awe and wonder at the miraculous nature of Jesus. There's an old saying that says, familiarity breeds contempt. That haunted me. I wondered if I'd become so familiar with these stories that I had ignored the omnipotent hand of God at work in this miracle. So my question is, how do we share these stories in such a way that we reveal the awe-inspiring nature of who Jesus is? If you ask the average Christian today, would, would they say that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John told these stories about Jesus accurately and that they are as accurate as can possibly be? Or how many would say that the Gospels were just embellished stories from the first century from a group that were following Jesus without any impact for us today? However, I really want you to see the way the four Gospel writers intended you to see Jesus. I want you to see that they and the rest of the New Testament authors portrayed Jesus as the supreme God. Please bear with me for a few more minutes and let me push this just a little bit further. I get frustrated to the point of being really annoyed when people talk about Jesus in overly common terms. You know... Uh, the man upstairs, 
Jesus is my co-pilot. Jesus is my friend. Uh, Now, Pastor Tim (laughs) quoted one of those great, wonderful hymns that we've had from the past, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, last week. But what kind of friend are we talking about when we talk about Jesus as our friend? Is there any way to compare it to who he truly is? So I tried to come up with some comparisons, but most of the things that I thought of were pretty flaky. And this one's probably flaky too, but I'm going to use it because it's the only thing I could come up with. So what if I told you that before Billy Graham passed away, me and Billy Graham were good old buddies? You'd think to yourself, how would a famous internationally known evangelist be friends with a guy from small town Kansas that grew up on a farm that very seldom, if ever, left the state. You, you'd think my, my statement was pretty silly. But Jesus is so much greater than any person who has ever walked the face of this earth. And if you miss his divine character and nature to try and bring him down to our level, it could be seen as blasphemous. Jesus wants a relationship with us, but I don't want you to forget who he truly is. I've been studying the book of Hebrews for months now, and I've come to a conclusion that the author of the book of Hebrews based his letter on a simple principle. And that principle is Jesus is greater than anything that you can imagine. He's writing to a congregation that has strong Jewish roots And so he starts with the angels and says, you know, those very messengers of God, aren't they great and amazing? And the author says, no. Compared to Jesus, they're not worth noting. Jesus is greater than the angels. In fact, he created them. So he anticipates that they'd say, oh, but what about Moses? Surely the Moses, when he, everything that he did for the Jews and delivering us out of Egypt, No, sorry. Moses doesn't compare with Jesus either. Jesus is greater than Moses. So what about Abraham, you know, our great patriarch? No, he's not comparable either. Even though he's the father of the nation, he doesn't compare to Jesus. So Abraham saw Melchizedek as greater than him. He gave him a tithe after he came home from the battle. So what about Melchizedek? No, not Melchizedek either. In fact, Melchizedek is only a shadow of Jesus. Okay, so what about the Levites and the priestly system? Well, Jesus is greater than that, and he stands above them as the great high priest and is beyond the priestly system. What the Levitical system could not do, Jesus was able to do by bringing us into direct contact, direct access to God through the cross. Jesus gave all who believe constant access. Everything and anything else falls short of the character and nature of Jesus. And before completing his book, the author says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. No one or nothing compares to Jesus because he is preeminent, supreme, creator, sustainer, and savior of the world. The Apostle Paul 
wholeheartedly agrees with this supremacy of the Christ. And in Colossians, Paul goes to great lengths to portray the supremacy of the Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, Paul says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Did you hear that? All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In everything, he might have the supremacy. So whenever you speak the name of Jesus, a holy fear should come over you. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not telling you to be afraid of Jesus. A believer has no reason to be afraid of Jesus. But I believe that we should hold the name of Jesus in such high and wondrous state of appreciation and awe and wonder and glory and honor that we should shudder when we hear his name or speak it out loud. The hair on the back of your neck should stand up in awe and wonder at the mention of the name of Jesus. So here's the thing. As believers, we must lift up the name of Jesus in everything that we say and do. We must get back to the roots of our faith and worship Jesus as the Almighty God. He is the one that John spoke about of in his apocalypse. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, is a tremendous passage. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dripped in, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth as a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the white press of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Soon there will be a day when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will come again for his church. So why should I spend so much time talking about the supremacy of the Christ in a story about feeding 4,000? My simple answer is that only God can perform miracles and Jesus is the supreme God. Back in the 70s, date myself again, back in the 70s there was a song Andre Crouch sang 
Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him, there's no other. Jesus is the way. The music may be dated, but those words, the lyrics of that song endure and ring true to today. Jesus is preeminent and supreme because there's no one like him. There's no other way. There's no other path to heaven. No other path to eternal peace with God. No one and nothing else can satisfy the longings of your heart. I don't know what you put your faith in, but Jesus is the only way for you to find wholeness in this life. You try and fill your life with money or fame or relationships or achieving, but none of it will have any meaning without Jesus. There is no other way. The entirety of your life on the face of this earth is the chance for you to recognize and realize that Jesus is the ultimate choice for living this life. Every other choice leaves you empty and wanting. Nothing else will bring you contentment and peace. Nothing else will bring you the immeasurable joy that you can find in Jesus. Nothing will give you the perfect fulfillment that you desperately seek. Nothing this world offers can compare. Nothing. Only Jesus. In him is the supremacy. There's nothing greater, nothing else worth comparing. Jesus is the ultimate. So my question is, do you know Jesus? Do you truly know the King of kings and Lord of lords? Have you committed your life wholly and unashamedly to Jesus? This is your opportunity. We are not guaranteed another day. We're not even guaranteed another breath. So this is your moment to choose the only logical and meaningful choice. Choose Jesus. He's waiting and calling for you. The one who healed the sick and the lame, the one who drove out demons, the one who fed thousands out of nothing and raised the dead back to life is calling you. He can transform your life if you choose him. So to close, I have one more quick story. Uh, some years ago, I was working with a group of people that didn't know Jesus. And some of them had made a real mess of their lives. They were broken and bitter and confused. And as I worked with them, I prayed and prayed and prayed that they would turn their lives over to Jesus. But for some reason, they just kept going the wrong direction and made things worse for their lives. Well, one day I was working doing some construction and a song came on the radio and a flood of emotion swept over me. Tears streamed down my face as I recognized the significance of these words for those that didn't know Jesus. Crystal Lewis sang the song, People get ready. Jesus is coming. Soon we'll be going home. Now those are wonderful words for those of us who believe, but they're frightening and terrible for those who don't. Jesus is coming back soon, and he will reward believers and take, him, take us with him to be with him. But he will cast out those who don't believe. So let me ask again, are you ready? If not, please don't leave here today without choosing to follow Jesus. I'll be here 
and would love to talk and pray with you, especially if you still have questions. And if not me, I'm sure Pastor Tim or Pastor Jake or any of the elders would love to pray with you as well. Come to Jesus. He's all you need. There isn't anything that he can't do. Come to Jesus.